Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, the federal trial of Stuart Rhodes, founder of the extreme right-wing group Oath Keepers, goes to the jury. Will the group's founder end up in a jail cell for his attempt to overthrow the last presidential election? Rhodes is facing charges that include sedition. Also, is the U.S. planning to send troops into Haiti after U.S. policy turns that resource-rich country into a failed state? We'll also talk to Food Not Bombs founder Keith McHenry about feeding the hungry on Thanksgiving. And Miguel Gabriel Molina joins us for a preview of KPFA's special coverage of On Thanksgiving on Alcatraz tomorrow. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And we broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We are happy to have you along. And we are happy to report to you uh, that KPFA will be keeping up the tradition of on Thanksgiving and the liberation of Alcatraz. Uh, and somebody who has been in the middle of it from uh, just about the very beginning there is our own Miguel Gabriel Molina. He's going to be out there for the sunrise celebration. Miguel, tell us about uh, why we do this every year. It started uh, in earnest in 1968. Well, well, well that was when he, uh, you know, a, a group of students and then some uh, native leaders uh, went on there. It was actually 1969 and occupied the island. Uh, and that started the whole awakening and the consciousness across the country that, uh, you know, Native Americans, Indians weren't, you know, vanished. They weren't something in the past. They were present. They were here now. And and, and that tradition uh, of, of getting ourselves to Alcatraz uh, started in uh, around 1990. And uh, when uh, AIM uh, West and Treaty Council decided to, uh, you know, bring back the tradition, of uh, the sunrise ceremony. So we gather on the day tomorrow, which is considered here Thanksgiving, but amongst the uh, tribal peoples, indigenous communities, uh, it's a day of mourning and a day of gratitude to the creator for our survival. And, and you know, Dennis, I think what's important is people to know history. The history we're taught in schools is not truth. It's all fabricated. It's all fables made up to, of course, you know, uh, support the colonization of this country and the uh, campaign of genocide of Indian nations within the United States territories. But back in 18, uh, excuse me, 1620, over 100 English colonialists, British, came over and arrived at uh, on the Mayflower and established the colonial, uh, the colony, excuse me, uh, called Plymouth. Um, you know, and these people, Dennis, these these groups that came, these uh, colonialists were a part of a fanatical Protestant uh, cult known as the Puritans. And uh, they came here and, you know, in, eight, excuse me, 1620 uh, and uh, by 1628, uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony was established by the Puritans. Well, that's the story. And what we're told is that, you know, the following year, 
the pilgrims, these Puritans, uh, were having, you know, uh, dinner with the Indians, with the natives, the local peoples there. And the local peoples there, you know, they grew corn, they grew beans, squash, tobacco, and other crops. They hunted and they fished because there was a lot of you know, seafood along the eastern uh, sobor, you know, on the coast, on the ocean. Uh, and they taught the, the pilgrims when they first arrived how to grow and cultivate the squash, the beans, the corn, which was native to the Americas. And uh, a year later, the same Puritan pilgrims uh, attacked uh, the village that had welcomed them. That was the village of the uh, Wanapanagogs and also the Massachusetts. Those were tribal Indian tribes that were there and uh, who welcomed the pilgrims and, and actually saved them, uh, you know, from winter and starvation. That following year, these same pilgrims uh, heard rumors that there was an uprising, uh, that something was going on. And what was happening, Dennis, is uh, the Native peoples there, like all Native peoples, give thanks to the Creator, especially in the harvest times, the harvesting at the end of the squash, the beans, the corn, and other, uh, you know, uh, other uh, crops that were grown. Uh, so they were celebrating what's called uh, the harvest of the corn, the corn dance ceremony. And, uh, you know, they had a big fire. They were dancing around the fire, you know, and uh, chanting and singing. Well, to the pilgrims, the Puritans, they didn't understand what was going on. They saw, you know, a group of, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, dancing around a fire and, and uh, chanting and yelling and hoopla, and they panicked. Uh, they gathered their forces and attacked the uh, the village that was having a corn dance ceremony celebrating the harvest. So that is Thanksgiving. And, of course, you know, when you have politicians and you have Hallmark, you know, uh, cards and other companies, they decided to make it into this, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, you know, feast. But in reality, it was the massacre of the tribe that had welcomed these Puritans. And even today, uh, the the descendants of those tribes, they they will gather tomorrow at Plymouth Rock and do ceremony, sunrise ceremony, and mourn, but also celebrate and thank the Creator in gratitude for our survival. So we well, gather we thank... tomorrow. <laughs> yes, go on. No, we gather tomorrow, Dennis, uh, for the traditional sunrise ceremony. And, uh, you know, we're going to be broadcasting live from 6 to uh, 8 o'clock. And uh, we invite everyone that can't make it to the rock to join us when we come together as Flash Honda crew and we do Radio Free Alcatraz. The other thing, too, is people have a misconception that Alcatraz is an island. It's not an island. Whatever dirt is there was brought over in barges to be able to grow trees, shrubberies, you know, and in the early days, in the late 1800s, they had gardens there. So all that dirt was transported. It's a giant boulder mountain that comes from the bottom of the bay and raises through the water into the sky. Uh, so we will be there. I, I want to, uh, Miguel, I just want to, I need to interrupt because I went, so can, are there still tickets if people want to come uh, and celebrate what we call on Thanksgiving? Uh, are yeah, the tickets well, Dennis, left? Uh, there is, uh, there is, I believe there's 200 tickets. 
you know, that are that are put aside for people. But I believe that it's sold out at this point. But there is about 200 tickets. And, you know, if folks want those tickets, uh, you got to get there early. Because there's going to be, you know, there's estimated for anywhere from four to 7,000 people coming. So uh, the okay. first boat, which is all... You know, the the staffs, our crew, the radio, all the media crews, and the dancers and drummers uh, go first. That'll be the first boat he leaves at 4.30. And everyone else, there's a second boat at 5 o'clock, and I believe a boat every half hour. So, uh, okay. you know, get there early uh, because tickets will disappear in no time. And I should tell people that we will also be, Flashpoints will be uh, covering uh, the morning and we will uh, present uh, the some of the ceremony and some of the what goes on at Flashpoints at 5 o'clock Pacific time. Uh, and also on Friday, uh, we'll have uh, more from uh, what takes place tomorrow morning in terms of the un-Thanksgiving, the liberation of Alcatraz once again by the indigenous communities here in North America, fighting back yes. always against the genocide. That's Miguel Gavila Molina. He's a senior producer. He's going to be out there. And uh, we all are going to be grateful uh, as we celebrate uh, tomorrow morning. Thanks, Gavilan. Be safe. Get some sleep. Yes. Oh. Just warm. <laughs> Earmuffs, gloves, scarf. All right. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, we now turn our attention to back to Washington, D.C. Uh, and that part of the country, the Oath Keepers trial. Uh, you've been hearing about the jury trial. We've been covering it here with our good friend Arun Gupta. He's been writing about it uh, for Salon, Raw Story, The Daily Beast. Uh, and, well, the case uh, against Mr. Stuart Rhodes has gone to the jury. Uh, and that's why we invited Arun back to talk about it. So uh, it would be great. Welcome back, uh, my friend. Good to have you with us. Great to be with you, Dennis. Well, uh, just before we jump into the latest and what we might want to know, be interested to know, need to know about the trial, could you just give a little bit of a, a context? Because you've written, uh, I believe it was a piece I read in Salon, uh, The Road to January 6th, how 50 years of violent uh, white nationalism inspired the Oath Keepers. Could you just say a little bit about the context, the history of this violent group? Yeah, so the Oath Keepers was founded in 2009 uh, after the election of President Barack Obama. And within really just a couple of weeks, it was about three weeks, that uh, the Tea Party came into being. And I, I covered the Tea Party as well, its its origins uh, pretty in, in intensely. I did a long piece for political research associates that folks can find. And one of the things, you know, I really I just discovered and, and tried to make clear to people, like, look, it, it was not an astroturf movement. It, it was genuine. And, and of course, it, we should believe it was genuine because it was a white backlash. And that is really so much of the history of you mean America. Genuine as in grassroots uh, originating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go on. I just So you're talking about. That, that, uh, uh, yeah. 
Go on. Yeah, and just because and just because there were billionaires who supported it, and you know the funny thing is Fox News didn't take it seriously right away. It was only um, so Tea Party movement starts, and they were the ones who really globbed on to Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers. He had written this blog post imagining like President uh, Herr Hitlery um, and how she was going to uh, basically round up patriots and uh, they were going to confiscate guns um, and uh, uh, send patriots to internment camps and shoot resistors. And, and the thing is, going back, this conspiracy comes out of one of the most extremely violent uh, white nationalist uh, uh, terrorist groups of the last 50 years, Posse Comitatus. It, it becomes, you know, very commonplace in the 1990s militia movement, which uh, Stuart Rhodes was influenced by. I did this big uh, profile of him for the Daily Beast, uh, where I talked to his estranged wife for like six or seven hours to really delve into who he was. He believed in all the black helicopters, the FEMA camps, you know, the UN uh, were going to infiltrate. And so his, his kind of like paranoid conspiracism goes pretty far back. And so this formed like uh, the Oath Keepers' origins. And, and Stuart Rhodes was always like, oh, no, no, we're not racist. And he still says to this day, how could I be racist? I'm, I'm part Mexican. And, and, you know, we know that that has nothing to do with it. Uh, I also wrote a piece um, called Multiracial White Supremacy. And, you know, I think especially when we see people like Kanye West and Candace Owens, you know, wearing White Lives Matter shirts, you know, it's just like uh, it's pretty clear that the uh, um, white supremacy has become a multiracial phenomenon on the right. So Stuart and, and Rhodes, We should it, also remind people, he also has quite the education, a Yale law degree, which gives him a, a little bit of pump uh, and credibility, right? This, this works for him. He's very savvy. He's no dummy. And he's trying to basically put his legal training to use in the trial claiming that there wasn't any actual plot he wasn't coordinating anything and and we'll get into that but in terms of setting the scene the reason you know we talk about all this the posse comitatus roots you know the militias that's where timothy mcveigh came out of you know who bombed the um uh, federal building in oklahoma city i think killing something like 150 uh people is because on the stand one of so it's it's basically the key conspirators for the oath keepers who are who are on the stand. It's Stuart Rhodes and four others. One of them is Jessica uh, Watkins. I, I think uh, she's in Iraq or Af she's a veteran. I think of either Iraq or Af Afghanistan war. She led one of the two stacks into the capital. And she talked on the witness stand how she maintained before January 6th that she was like consuming a steady diet of Infowars and Alex Jones, watching the conspiracy theorists rants and interviews several hours a day. And she said this informed her worldview and, and you know, attitudes about the government. 
And she talked about, she was concerned about a variety of conspiracy theories um, around the 2020 election. She's worried that the UN was going to be deploying forces um, to Washington, D.C. to ensure Joe Biden took office, then forcibly taking uh, guns from Americans and mandating uh, COVID-19 vaccinations and allowing a possible Chinese invasion from Canada. Now, Jessica Watt and said, in hindsight, I feel like I was gullible. And her words may really, um, her testimony um, may, I think, uh, is really going to hurt Rhodes and, and the other ones because she was admitting to her culpability. But what's interesting, and, you know, very, I haven't seen any uh, mainstream media uh, commentators who picked up on this, is this is going back 50 years to, to the posse comitatus. You know, and they carried out these series of uh, bombings and, and assassinations in uh, kind of the Rocky Mountain states in the, in the 1980s. And this was one of their key conspiracy theories that uh, basically um, uh, uh, black uh, gang members, Bloods and Crips, uh, were going to be used by the government uh, to go door to door and uh, round up guns and haul off. Um, and, you know, it's all part of this vast Jewish conspiracy um, and uh, haul off uh, patriots to internment camps uh, where they'll, you know, resist to anyone who resists will be shot. And then those in the internment camps, you know, will uh, eventually be shot. So this conspiracy, this really vicious white nationalist conspiracy, Conspiracy remains completely unchained uh, to this day. And I think it's why, you know, we really need to like whenever you see these far right forces say, oh, we're we're we welcome everyone. We're, we're not racist. And it's just like, you know what? That's just a lie. And uh, the yeah. January 6th coup was very much a, a white nationalist coup, as, as you know, we could see. And there's more violence coming. I, and let's let's just uh, talk about this in sort of two uh, sections. Now, in terms of the Oath Keepers, are they on trial now for the actual violence that took place in the streets and the death of cops and that? Or are they also being uh, tried for planners, for collaboration in terms of creating the event? So they, they're being hit with a, a number of, of charges. Um, there's stuff like uh, destruction of federal property, um, uh, obstruction of justice. Uh, Stuart Rhodes uh, is charged with like um, destroying uh, messages and uh, uh, telling others to destroy uh, text messages, delete them after January 6th. I think some of them, like uh, Watkins, like uh, she was caught on video um, yelling uh, in the in the Capitol, directing a crowd who were uh, fighting with the police inside the building, yelling at, at to push. She, she was yelling, push, push, try and get through. And now she's claiming, um, which, you know, it certainly isn't helping her uh, credibility. She took responsibility for it, but then is saying like, oh, I didn't know what was going on at the, the front of this crowd. And so that's like kind of one of the big questions. Like, is the jury going to believe what, what appears to be a lot of uh, very dubious assertions by uh, Rhodes and the others? But the thing is, 
in terms of your question about violence, I, I think this was a real failure by the DOJ. Like, you know, when you see, like, left-wing activists who are even engaged in nonviolent, peaceful protests, they will get the book thrown at them in, in terms of all sorts of right. draconian charges. And the, the DOJ under Garland could have easily charged everyone who was there with complicity in the deaths of, of uh, the various people who died that day or afterwards. Like, there's a total of five deaths uh, that happened on January 6th or related to it. You could easily charge them with felony murder. And we, we have to remember there are hundreds of uh, um, those who were charged who basically were walked away. They were given no jail time or they were given, like, a little at-home detention or even just probation. And these $500 fines, even though the cost, the damage and then the increased security is in the billions of dollars. I mean, I've seen nonviolent activists being hit with like fines of like, you know, quarter million dollars uh, for a benign protest. And yet they, people are trying to overthrow the government and, and they're being hit with the equivalent of like a, a parking ticket in, in New York City. So, you know, there is a lot of, I think, very questionable, um, uh, charging and treatment of 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 the um, defendants. You know, we we've seen some defendants be allowed to go on like vacations to Mexico, or you know the um, uh, the QAnon shaman. He was like given uh, like a, a an organic food diet in prison. And if anybody knows about prisons, I mean, you know, the, the uh, Muslim immigrants like sued the government uh, for yeah. basically uh, giving them pork in, in ICE uh, prison, yeah. and that they refused to um, uh, not give them uh, religiously appropriate meals. So they, yeah, no I one spent is five charged. years teaching in Rikers Island. Uh, I can tell you uh, what I've seen uh, in, in, in that regard. It, uh, and people serving five and 10 and 15 years for not even coming close to the kind of criminality that we witnessed uh, on this show. Mm -hmm. We're running out of time, but I do want to ask you, because as somebody who's really followed all of this very closely, what's your gut reaction in terms of uh, special counsel here? Are you comfortable with that? You think uh, the timing is a little bit off? Or what's your take? Well, the thing is, Garland said he was not going to let politics influence um, his uh, decisions about prosecuting Trump. And then he gets before the American public and says, because of politics, I'm appointing a special counsel. Yeah. It just adds another layer of complexity. It's, I mean, the, the guy's a disaster. Uh, he's he's just like the center right Republican. This is this is what the Democrats do. They keep chasing after the right wing, like just pleading for them for bipartisanship, even as they're lighting the Constitution on on fire and and looking for every opportunity to burn down what the remnants of of, of uh, liberal democracy. I mean, you know, the Democrats are as much complicit in the rise of fascism as is uh, the right wing. And so, uh, he, I, I mean, I'm watching this in slow-mo. It really is like a slow-motion ballet. Trump announces. It's almost like he was begging Trump to announce 
so the attorney general could have the excuse too close to an election. What, which election are we talking about here? Since when uh, <laughs> is that you're going to run in two years, uh, make it okay for you to murder cops? I don't, I don't get this. And and you know, let's remember. Question. Was, go on, go on, please. It, it was it was James Comey who gave us Donald Trump. Now, look, Hillary Clinton, only a disastrous candidate like Hillary Clinton could lose to Donald Trump. But everything being equal, if it wasn't uh, for the Comey letter that he sent out ten days before the election, announcing right. like that they were investigating, and you know, Nate Silver as as problematic as a lot of his uh, kind of uh, statistical polling is, that's going forward. In hindsight, what he really showed, and he maintain he maintains this a hundred percent, that in hindsight, you look at the polls. Hillary Clinton uh, lost about, um, I forget what the exact number was, I think it's like 2.1% because of the Comey letter. Like, it showed up in the polling data, and that was a margin that cost uh, uh, her the election. So she only has hurt herself to blame, but... Comey was still a deciding factor, and he was doing it because of politics, even though he said he was never going to have politics. This, this is this just absolute disastrous way that the right games the system. And, and you know, you have the liberals who think like, oh, we're going to be nonpartisan and objective, and they just completely be patsies for the far-right extremism and we're the ones who pay the price they never pay well, the I'm, price. you know here's i'm gonna maybe i maybe i should r rob a bank and then run for dog catcher sorry guys we got, an election. we got an election coming up can't do it and you know i we're we're i'm sorry i'm out of time we, we know as journalists as seasoned journalists how many times have we heard you can't you can't do that too close to the election. You can't do that. It, it's going to even yep. it's going to have the appearance of. So what is going? He's going to wait and wait and as soon as please announce Donald. Please announce. Please, please, please. <laughs> Here we go. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. That is Arun Gupta. You should check out his writing salon, raw story, Delhi Beast. Where else have you been covering this for? Do I got them all? No, that that's, that's that's mainly it. But you know, I also write for in these times, Jacobin Nation, Intercept, Progressive, all, all the usual suspects. All the great places. Uh, we thank you for your journalism. Really appreciate it, Arun. Please stay safe. Come back. You too. Thank you, Dennis. All right. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Short break. We're going to be back with Kevin Pina. Uh, <clears throat> is the U.S. going to send troops into Haiti after destabilizing that country, ripping it off, sucking out the resources? Nobody knows this story better than Kevin Pina, our senior producer. Stay with us. <laughs>
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Just a correction. Uh, the broadcast uh, in the morning tomorrow is from 5 to 8, from 5 a.m. to 8. So check it out. Uh, you don't want to miss it. It's always amazing. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is Dennis Burns, Senior Daily Investigative News Magazine. Mr. Kevin Pino, welcome back to Flashpoints, our senior uh, producer, correspondent, and someone who's been covering Haiti, uh, I guess, since you're you're 40 now, so half your life you've been covering Haiti. Welcome, Kevin. Uh, is the United States going to... In- is the United States going to send in troops again uh, to Haiti? Why would the U.S. be sending troops to Haiti? Well, I'm I'm, I'm laughing because you said I'm 40 now. Is that what you said? <laughs> oh, I know. I know you're 41. I, I couldn't. All right. right. Uh, well, it's been, you know, more than 35 years now that I've been covering Haiti with you. And, <laughs> you started uh, at six. Go on, please. <laughs> Well, you know, that's that's not really the question at this point. Um, I I, um, I think the better question to ask is: Will the United States be willing to change its role in Haiti? Will it continue to try to control the outcome of that country's elections? Will it continue to let the CIA run roughshod? infiltrate the police, let Haiti remain a major transshipment point for drug traffickers and cocaine bound for the United States? Will the United States continue its illicit relationship with uh, what can only be called a predatory oligarchy that it, uh, you know, tries to pawn off as a private sector, private enterprise, which is a joke? Will the United States be willing to alter what has basically been a client relationship with Haiti, where it has attempted to 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 control its internal political processes, where it has always seen it as its as its right to uh, intervene in Haiti's sovereign internal affairs. That that's the real question. Now, whether or not that will require troops, uh, if the United States is unwilling to change that relationship, I think is really up to the Haitian people. I think that as the popular movement uh, becomes more and more fed up on the ground, there is a greater possibility of a different kind of change. And if there's any reason that the United States would intervene, it would be to forestall any real change, not to not to um, usher it in. Forestall. Uh, change well. What well, again? I'm always. I always have to ask this question: Why would the United States want to forestall change in this failed state called Haiti, which they had so much to do in terms of the failure? What? Um, say more you about know, you know, history. You know, you know who the who the newly who the newly minted uh, Haiti experts are because they always like to make Haiti's last name, poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, when, in fact, of course, Haiti is sitting on tons of iridium, uh, tons of uranium. Uh, There are uh, untapped resources in that country uh, that are still to this day being mined, uh, right right to this very moment, are being mined, uh, a lot of it being done underhandedly, 
uh, with Canadian mining companies and U.S. mining companies in sweetheart deals that were signed away by uh, Michelle Martelly and the corrupt PhD government, which the United States and Canada and France ushered in after the 2004 coup. They ushered that government in in 2011 uh, through fraudulent elections. Then a second set of fraudulent elections with Jovenel Moise. We know that the United Nations had virtual total control of that country. 13 to four, 13 and a half years, if we really want to count down the lifetime of MINUSTA, as it was called then, the UN military mission, Chapter 7, uh, UN military, US, UN Security Council approved mission. You know, and all of that, of course, leading to what? The can- France and uh, the United States and, can- and Canada right now today are sanctioning Michel Martelly, are sanctioning Joseph Lambert, are sanctioning Laurent Lamont, are sanctioning Yuri Latour, all of the politicians who they enabled and protected for decades and allowed to prey on the Asian people. Today, they want us to believe that they're changing their tune by sanctioning the very same individuals for supporting gangs and supporting drug trafficking, who they themselves put into power. It's, it's a very difficult pill to swallow. And now <laughs> we've, got, we've got Biden, what, bringing, dusting off Christopher Dodd, former Senator Christopher Dodd, who, of course, was one of the architects of the uh, maneuver that tried to pull Aristide's teeth uh, in order to, to, with a gun to his head uh, during the Governor's Island Accord, uh, him and Lawrence Pizzullo. Uh, of course, Merton, who would later become the charge d'affaires uh, of, of Haiti, uh, Kenneth Merton. All these individuals were involved in trying to uh, hold Aristide uh, to, to give the military, the former military who had overthrown him in 1991, complete amnesty. And these are the guys who were the drug dealers. Kevin, who Kevin, to- talk right into the phone. Kevin, talk right into the phone, please. Yeah, we're losing you a little bit. I said, I said they're going to bring back Christopher Bodd who was involved in Governor's Island, and that was a Governor's Island accord that was intended to try to clip our seeds wings and try to destroy the Lava Loss movement, just like the 2004 coup. Uh, the only good thing I can say about Christopher Dodd and Biden bringing him back and blessing him up is that at least he has some history of, uh, of, of knowing and, and at least raising the question of the CIA's role in Haiti and the CIA's role in drug trafficking. Uh, because don't, don't forget that in 1991, it was the Haitian military who had been on the CIA payroll for more than a decade. It was revealed were the ones who had transformed Haiti into the major transshipment point for cocaine. So now we fast forward. Okay, Ke- Kevin, we're losing you. We're losing you, Kevin. You got to move your whole body or adjust yourself or adjust your phone. You can't hear me? Because I want to make sure. Sh- go on. Uh, I was talking about Christopher Dodd and the Governor's Island Accord. Yeah. Okay. Go on. You sound better now. Sorry. Was was trying to clip was trying to clip Aristide's wings. Right. Uh, they were trying to force him to give the military a general amnesty when the Haitian military were the ones who had been the CIA payroll, the Hawaii Command, and they were the ones responsible for transforming Haiti first into a transshipment point for cocaine. Well, Christopher Dodd at least had some experience with knowing the CIA's history in Haiti. That's a step up. But on the other hand, uh, you know, to, to accept that the U.S. is now going to sanction the same people that they put in power to prey upon the Haitian people. Uh, Michel Martelly, as I said, you like to, I don't know if you heard me make that list. Uh, Joseph Lambert, who was uh, the president of the Haitian Senate, Francis 
uh, excuse me, the U.S. and Canada have just said that they're going to sanction these same people, but they're the ones who brought them to power. So what are we supposed to believe? Uh, you know, at, at this point, I have seen so many permutations and false narratives of U.S. foreign policy saying that it's trying to do the right thing in Haiti. Uh, I'm certain that I can speak on behalf of many of my Haitian colleagues who say we just simply don't believe them anymore, Dennis. No, no longer a question of words. We don't believe them anymore. We have. No would you would you talk about Kevin? Would you talk about Kevin? Would you talk about how the U.S. government? You talked about the drug people that the U.S. empowered. Say a little bit more about that because I think it's it would be incomprehensible to most people listening to understand how, in fact, the United States empowers the drug trade, and they have used and facilitated it in Haiti. In fact, the, this, the, the DEA was run out of Haiti. We reported this, Kevin, by people working for the Central Intelligence of the United States because the DEA were going after the drug people who were doing the subversion for U.S. intelligence. This is an old story, isn't it? Talk about the drug people. This is serious, in which the U.S. was engaged, knew everything about the drug trade in Haiti. And they're responsible for these drugs coming into the U.S. through Haiti, based on the way they destabilized Haiti. Right? I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm trying to say, is Yuri Latour and uh, Joseph Lambert are two well-known individuals by the U.S. Embassy, protected many times by the U.S. Embassy. And now suddenly we're supposed to believe that the U.S. is being sincere when they sanction these same individuals that they allowed to prey on the Haitian people? Michel Martelly, famously involved in the, in the drug trade. His brother-in-law, Tiki Sahemi, uh, infamous cocaine dealer on the island, tons of cocaine, uh, well-known by the DEA and by the CIA. Uh, now suddenly they're being on a sanctions list because they're they're finally being called out for running drugs and for running gangs. Well, like I said, you know, we have seen so many false narratives from the U.S. It's difficult to believe their sincerity when these are the same people they empowered who were the drug traffickers, who were the ones who, who, who financed the gangs, and now they're telling us they're going to sanction them? It's just, it's, uh, you know, it's just incredulous. I don't know how else to put it. I'm just incredulous to... To, to believe them uh, that they're that they're sincere at this point, and, and I'll say it again, you know, Christopher Dodd may be a step in the right direction, but he also comes in with his own baggage when it comes to Haiti, and particularly his role in 2004, I mean, in 1991, 1994, and Aristide's return. So, you know, many of the same architects who tried to destroy Aristide and Lavalos in 1991 are being recycled. Many of the Haitian actors who were empowered by Clinton and the Obama administration and the PHTK party, who we know were, were preying on the Haitian people, who were running gangs uh, uh, and financing it, the drug trade, with a wink and a nod of the CIA, are now being uh, sanctioned and taken out. It's a different, uh, you know, it's a changing of the guard. It's, it's, it's merely changing the, the, the appearance. But we, we're not sure that we can count on this being a substantive change of U.S. foreign policy. And that's what Haitians are looking for. When is there going to be a substantive change of U.S. foreign policy that no longer intervenes 
and the sovereign affairs of Haitian people, of the Haitian people who no longer support a predatory oligarchy who they try to pawn off as a private sector, and, and who will allow nations to take the lead in determining their own future, and who will allow nations to end the raping and pillaging of their mineral resources by U.S. and Canadian companies, by foreign French companies as well, by, by foreign companies. When will those deals end? When will that, those riches benefit the Haitian people as they're demanding? Well, that's a good question. Uh, we've been speaking with Kevin Pina. The situation for the Haitian people uh, is not getting any better, and it should be now uh, be considered as a crime against humanity, the way in which the United States has been having a mass deportation of Haitians. The treatment is extraordinary. We and, talk and no about question, war crimes. We realize that, that the people they're sanctioning today are the very same people who supported a low-intensity conflict of violence and terrorism, through supporting gangs in Haiti for almost two decades. And the U.S. knew about it, and they're today only pretending as if they've learned about it and are sanctioning those individuals. That is a crime. That's the crime. All right. Well, Kevin Pena, it's a crime that more people don't have an opportunity uh, to hear your research. Uh, but we are always grateful uh, that you are a senior producer here on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. That's Kevin Pena. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. Mike. The music. Well, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and let's see if we can hear a little music before we get the Henry on the air. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and uh, we continue with our regular segment on hunger 
and houselessness in this country with our good friend Keith McHenry, the founder decades ago of Food Not Bombs, an extraordinary human being with an extraordinary history, and he's been writing a big book about it. Uh, and uh, sooner or later, Keith, we're going to see this book, but we've been t- we were talking about uh, some of your history, which is absolutely fascinating given the career you've chosen. Uh, for the people, but would you just could you say a word or two about um, uh, your background? Your 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 family is one of the sort of the original 1776ers. Yeah, so my uh, uh, the first McHenry was Dr. James McHenry, and that came to uh, um, Philadelphia in 1773 to study medicine, and uh, he studied uh, um, with Benjamin Rush. And got uh, became recruited to the um, uh, you know to the Continental Army and set up a field hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, for what became the Battle of Bunker Hill, and that's where we met Washington. And he joined his staff, and uh, um, eventually, halfway through the Revolutionary War, of traveling with uh, um, Washington and doing Valley Forge uh, and and all, like spending that winter, he got assigned to Lafayette, um, and uh, by Washington, and he was at the surrender of Yorktown uh, at the Continental Congress, signed the U.S. Constitution, and became Secretary of War under Washington and Adams. So that's uh, the one, the founding um, McHenry that, in, in, in the U.S. or in the colony. All right, uh, Keith, let me ask you to speak up and speak right into the phone because we're sort of losing. We're having trouble with the phones okay. today. Um, so yeah, is that keep, better? Keep a, yeah. Um, let's talk about um, feeding people on Thanksgiving. Uh, obviously, tomorrow is a big day. You've got a lot of people to feed. Could you talk a little bit about what you're anticipating, uh, what it might look like, uh, and uh, are you getting some help? Do people tend to be more supportive on Thanksgiving of Food Not Bombs? How, how does that work? Yeah, so I would say every year for the entire 42 years, the most um, popular day for people to help food not bonds is on Thanksgiving. And um, we were the, uh, we did it outside uh, both Thanksgiving and Christmas um, through the pandemic. Um, and we did, it was huge, huge effort and lots and lots of people helped us. It was pretty amazing. And then, um, but the thing that is interesting is that they, uh, unfortunately, people don't think of helping all the rest of the time. And that's re- really, really tragic that, that, that that's the case. And, um, you, know, if, you know, because there's hunger never takes a break. It just is, you know, it's, uh, we've been out, we'll be out here 1,000 days every single day since the pandemic started on December 10th. And, um, and, you know, it just, uh, it's, um, and the need is just overwhelming. It's just incredible. And then, and then on Thanksgiving, too, that's something that is really, um, I always think about is how, what a huge num- percentage of indigenous people are homeless and are in our country. This is their, you know, this is their land. And now they're landless and being uh, pushed from doorway to doorway and, um, you know, from, Riverbank to Levy, you know, in our town, and um, 
you know, just really tragic, and this is the case all over. Um, food Not Bombs, for instance, in, in South Dakota, and, uh, you know, it's on virtually 100% indigenous people that eat that, yeah, that are uh, uh, Grand Rapids group. And then, also, you know, we also have, like, in Ayers Rock in, uh, um, in Australia, most of the people eating with the, us there and many of the volunteers are Aboriginal people who are now landless in their own land. And, and, and that's really something to remember on, on Thanksgiving day is, is, is how it's unnecessary, you know, to have so much poverty and so much suffering. And then here, you know, to the, you know, they announced the day before Thanksgiving that they're going to send millions and millions more in weapons to um, the war in, Af- in, uh, in uh, Ukraine and um, we already, you know, spent trillions and trillions of dollars in other wars, and yet our people are living on the streets, and there does not seem to be a plan to help the people that are living on the streets. Um, it's and interesting. The other thing, we're you, going you... through blankets like crazy, and, we, and, and here it is, you know, that what a metaphor, huh? Columbus uh, handing out the smallpox blankets to eradicate the people of uh, of. Uh, the Americas, and now people are begging for blankets to stay warm on the streets. Begging for blankets. Uh, You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Keith McHenry, uh, who is the founder of Food Not Bombs. Keith, you obviously, you named the organization Food Not Bombs. That was a political action uh, because you believe so strongly, like many, that uh, so much money on weapons is a waste, and it's time to really think about how we're going to feed uh, the future of the world. So, and as you were saying and suggesting, while you you found a group called Food Not Bombs, you come from a family that uh, chose bombs, not food. Uh, military people, military folks, but we, here we are in the 21st century, uh, and. Uh, war, war, and more war. What are your your thoughts now in terms of feeding people versus making weapons, food, not bombs? Well, you know, the thing, uh, you and I were talking about this. So my mother's uh, father was uh, um, an OSS officer, and he was um, involved in, in, in the firebombing of Tokyo. He was the director of Operation Meeting House, and he had spoke. In, uh, about uh, you know white man's burden and, and how I would have to take up that mantle at some time and uh, and determine who would live and who would die and that's part of the theme of, of my book um, is these uh, how these uh, events uh, um, with my you know my ancestors and my grandparents and you know the influence of growing up in national parks and so on on my doing food now bombs. And um, the thing that really horrified me the most, and which horrifies me right now, is that he kept talking to McNamara, Curtis LeMay, Robert McNamara on the phone uh, in his den when he lived in uh, Needham, Massachusetts. Uh, below the 63 black and white photos he had taken from a bomb bay of a B-29. This is your grandfather, right? This is your maternal grandfather right keith that you're talking about now this is my mother's father yep yeah go on and he wanted them to drop the atomic bomb on hanoi so his background is phillips uh 
uh, Exeter, Dartmouth, Harvard Law, OSS, and some kind of secret military society similar to Skull and Crossbones. And he believed that there, any, there was no um, limits to how we could defend capitalism is essentially his entire point of view, including the, the uh, atomic bombing of Hanoi. And a lot of his people that, pro, that he, in his kind of community of people, the, the descendants of his thought pattern and world are the ones like Victoria Newland and the people that are currently the architects of the current nuclear threat that we have today and and so it's i a lot of people don't realize how evil these exact people are and what their thought process is but i feel like growing up that i do know that and that we should be freaking out at this exact moment and we should be in the streets demanding food and not bombs or we're going to perish um you know we it's it's uh, um you know this is it one mistake. Now, it doesn't mean that the, you know, I think that the, in some senses the U.S., now that they're moving these new usable uh, low-yield nuclear weapons to Europe, will believe, could potentially believe that they need to send a message to the, to the Russians and to the rest of the world that we are the single power on Earth and don't mess with us and believe they can get away with just dropping one relatively small you know, half Hiroshima-sized atomic bomb on some symbolic location in Russia, and that that somehow will send this wonderful, glorious message. And and that's the thinking of these people. And and uh, and and any kind of accident could potentially uh, occur. And I think people need to take that seriously. At the same time, the economy is collapsing for working people, and and and. Uh, the evictions are outrageous. The number, of people, you know, why are we like here? Google, the leadership of Google um, lives in my community here in Santa Cruz, and in the, this part of the Bay Area. This is where Silicon Valley is, and yet they have, uh, you know, thousands of people living in the streets, um, and and there's no actual program to help these people, and uh, and, and uh, you know, essentially, you know. Food Not Bombs is, uh, in a large, to a large extent, the program in Santa Cruz to help people. Whereas, on, um, you know, that's just not, uh, you know, fortunately there are some other things happening in, in the community for sure. You know, some showers, there's a church that's trying to get showers out there and, and, and programs, programs by just uh, regular citizens trying to help, which is so beautiful. And like just churches, uh, you know, trying to help. People want to help. People have, their relatives are the ones that are facing eviction, are the ones facing homelessness. You know, they, they're the ones that, uh, you know, we're dealing with this. So there is a lot of compassion and a lot and a lot of um, cooperation, but still it's really deadly. And then so on, on the longest night of the year, December 21st, there will be memorial services for all those that died on the streets, and we were just already at this memorial today for Nick talking about the many people that were, um, you know, that we lost this year. It's just uh, between fentanyl. Well, and we, just we before we before we say goodbye, Keith, before I'm sorry to interrupt. Before we let no you problem. go, uh, I understand that this year in Santa Cruz in the Bay Area, there is a chance for people to get an indoor meal. Is that correct? 
and inside. Yeah, so in Santa Cruz at the Veterans Hall, um, around noon, there'll be the Thanksgiving meal, and they'll be be inside the the Veterans Hall on Front Street at um, Water. And where water and Pacific meet, and then the, and uh, and everybody is welcome. And it's a huge community meal, and I'm sure in your location, wherever you are, there will be good people serving a Thanksgiving meal. And and I do know that a lot of those meals will be uh, thinking about the uh, plight of indigenous people, as uh, where the, that this holiday once. Uh, you know, was representing really the invasion of the Americas and all that that well, represents. Well, you know, so, well what did you? We my, just had one. My minute. grandfather. Hmm? Yes. Go on. Go on. Go on. Yeah, my so my other grandfather, McHenry Donald Edward McHenry, National Park Service. He retired from as chief naturalist at Yosemite to Santa Cruz, and. Um, and, but he uh, had this other contrast of military experience from my mother's uh, father, and that was he was in the trenches of uh, in Belgium during World War One. So his view of war was from underground, essentially, while my other grandfather's was from thousands of feet above the city he was bombing. And um, he uh, had the... Uh, good fortune to be taken care of by a group of Hopi elders in Old Arabi when he had an uh, uh, accident uh, while driving to be a, his first ranger job at the Grand Canyon. And that has brought our family very, very close to the Hopi community and uh, the traditional people in northern Arizona. And then Funa Bonds itself has had a long, long history of helping at the Four Corners area with uh, the indigenous people, both the Diné and the Hopi. And then we um, were involved with uh, supporting like a Mohawk uprising in the Adirondacks when we first started. And again, we have been supporting the uh, 10 city embassies of the Aboriginal people in Cambrai and Sydney and Melbourne over the years. And so that's one of the things I like to remember on Thanksgiving is uh, really the, the... Beautiful. People who have fed themselves for thousands and thousands of years. That's Keith McHenry. I'm Dennis Bernstein. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Thanks, Keith. Have a happy un-Thanksgiving day. Uh, And um, thanks for joining us again tonight. Thank you so much, Dennis. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Just want to remind you again, I am told... Uh, that the broadcast tomorrow morning is from 5 to 8. You don't want to miss the sunrise ceremony at Alcatraz. And then Flashpoints will be playing for you uh, some of the sounds of uh, tomorrow morning on our show tomorrow and Friday. All this coming up straight ahead on the People's Radio Network. That's Pacifica. We're broadcasting to you from the San Francisco Bay Area over the People's Radio Network, the Pacifica. Radio Network. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Stay tuned. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. 
For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.